Hello, hello. Get ready for a journey through time with the Historians podcast, hosted by myself, Derek Mulligan, and my co-historian, Neil Federson-Hall. We invite you into our virtual living room for weekly fireside chats with world-renowned historians and authors. From ancient history to present day, the Historians covers it all with guests who have lived and experienced the stories they share. Join myself and Neil as we whiz back and forth through time, exploring the truth behind historical events that turn out to be way stranger and more exciting than fiction. So grab a cuppa and get ready to be transported to another time and place. Tune in now to join our history-loving community. Here we go. And good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of The Historians with myself, Neil Featherston Hall, with the long name. Unfortunately, my co-host Derek Mulligan won't be able to join us this afternoon. He has some work commitments, so I'm going to try and do this all by myself. I have a very special guest with us this afternoon. I'm sure we'll make uh, it the next half an hour, 40 minutes, as entertaining and as enlightening as ever can be. And considering I have a sort of a strange surname, Mark, I'm going to have a punt at yours. It's it's Pising. Oh my gosh, that's perfect. How, how do you oh, manage that? No there one. we go. Now no I guess it right. I was rehearsing it all morning. <laughs> Icing. Because it's a little bit different. It's a little bit unusual. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I once got an email before I was about to be interviewed uh, saying, how do you pronounce your name? That's yeah. for the audio book. How do you pronounce your name? Exactly. And I, I suddenly couldn't pronounce my name. <laughs> it's just really odd. Someone said to you, well, how do you pronounce it? I just, uh, but no, it is odd. It is odd. Good it and is bad. Good. It's good and bad. It is good <laughs> and bad. My name now I'm called, it's actually, it's Featherston Hall, but in, in, in England it's pronounced Fanshawe for some reason. Yeah, okay, that's interesting. My old man. It one. is. It's, it's a bit of a history there. But enough about my name. Um, Mark, you, you, you contacted us before on Hipstorians about this book that you'd written. And I have to say, I'm myself and Derek are history mm. nerds, you know. We like to think that we're not experts in everything, but we like to think that we've, yeah. we're familiar with a, with a lot of stories out there. You know, you can drop a name in and we'll, we'll have some, you know, we can relate to it. Mm. This came out of the blue to me this this astonishing mm-hmm. story that, that that you've written n4 down right that's mm-hmm. the that's the su- the subject of the book yeah n4 down the hunt for the arctic airship italia there you go so yeah. i mean i'm coming to this you know completely blind as it were <laughs> um and so i think that's a good thing because for the benefit of myself and our listeners it's 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 all fresh and new what is this story and how come we've never heard about it Okay, well, 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 the story is basically, in 1928, an airship, an Italian airship, no less, crashes about 500 miles, crashes near the North Pole. Uh, half, about half, The envelope floats away with half the crew on board and they're never seen again. And the, and the other half of the crew kind of faces kind of battle on the, on the floating sea ice afterwards. And, and the book is really about how they got the context, why they were there, why would anyone want to fly an airship near the North Pole, why did they crash, the fight for survival, and the ramifications and the consequences afterwards. So how come it's not more widely known? I mean, it sounds like a great adventure story. It sounds like, you know, it should be already, probably will be a Netflix series or a movie no, at this I, stage. Well, you know, and how, yeah. how come you, like, what's your background to it? How come you stumbled across it? Okay, so so, so the easy question first, I guess, why yeah. has it been forgotten? I th- well, let's put in how big was it at the time? I think you have to. That's why it's even more of a shock that's been forgotten now. How big was it at the time? Well, in 1926, 
Umberto Nobili, who's the kind of design and engineer and pilot of the airship, flies across from Norway to Alaska with Roald Amundsen, the famous Norwegian explorer. That was seen uh, across in an airship over the North Pole. And that, that was seen as, was described as one of the amazing, most amazing kind of aeronautical achievements of the century. The New York Times gave it kind of four full pages. Headline news everywhere, you know, across the globe is astonishing. Two years later, Umberto Nobili comes back by himself this time. Perhaps to begin with, a bit less headline news because Amundsen was, was a big name. But as it went on, and as the way of these things happen, when you have a crash, when a disaster happens, it becomes headline news. Of course. So, so the story of the airship, its disaster, its crash, the battle to find the survivors, the, you know, the, their battle on the ice, uh, you know, was headline news at the time. So that that makes it even more remarkable that we've, you know, almost, especially in the UK uh, and, and Ireland, uh, that, that's been forgotten. Uh, although, to be fair, there are nobody streets around in Europe. A friend of mine emailed me when he uh, when the, when she knew the subject of my book and went, I used to live on the Umberto Nobili Street. So, wow. uh, uh, and it's better known in Italy, of course, as well because he's he's a, a national hero. But yeah, uh, I think that's a really good that's a really good question. I, mm. I I think it's because airships seem to belong to this previous era. You know, you know, so they they were kind of I mean, everyone remembers a Hindenburg, but anything beyond before that is kind of a bit sketchy. Uh, I, I guess you know the Norwe- Norwegians, Italians, they aren't kind of the Germans or the Americans, so they don't have the the you know necessarily this huge kind of global presence. And the British weren't involved, refused to get involved in the search for him. So, so there's kind of perhaps right. the British don't really want to go back, go back to that the moment. So yeah, we 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 shall. I mean, you just mentioned the Hindenburg there, which was you know mm-hmm. obviously came what. 10 years later, Hindenburg is 1937, I think. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. And, but that, you mentioned the Hindenburg, you know, that started this conversation saying if people like myself and Derek mention the name, we, we can relate to it. We know, we'll know yeah, something yeah. about it. So almost everybody would know something uh, would have heard yeah. about the Hindenburg, but not this one. It's it's yeah, yeah. kind of slightly baffling to me. And I, I go back to that earlier question. How did you come across it and did you recognize it for the great story that it is straight away yeah. or did it take a little bit of digging okay a good question just one last thing on the hindenburg i think one of the yeah. things we remember about the hindenburg we remember it because it was done in front of the cameras of the world ah, good point yeah yeah you know, whereas this crashed you know in the arctic so you don't have all those amazing kind of newsreels images and the photographs and the film that's but, a good point, but, actually. Yeah. So I think that's a big difference there. Yeah. Uh, so how did, I, how did I come across this? Well, I suppose there were two stages. The first stage that I was developing, I, I've kind of been writing about science and technology and increasingly about aviation and history over the last few years. Mm. Uh, and I was developing a book proposal for uh, my agent about a kind of commer- a popular history of the airship. You know, this was, I was looking around for a story idea. I talked to friends I knew who'd written books. Uh, and I'd written a few articles about airships, and they all seemed to do really well, and no one had done a kind of a popular history, because there's so many amazing characters and disasters and triumphs and heroes. I thought, oh, wow, this would be a really good kind of good book to write. So I was working mm-hmm. with my agent, Erin, on, on this. Uh, and as I was doing this, I came across this little paragraph about this crash of this airship in you know, Italia, and I thought, oh, that, you know, that, that was, that's a really good story. I'll put it in. But also my instinct went, actually, that is such a good story. Oh, I, I say to my agent, perhaps we should 
just do a new focus on this. And I thought, well, I can't really, you know, because agents are agents. And I've uh, you've already sold kind of... you've already sold this idea. Now you got yeah, it. yeah. I can't really go back. Actually, this is a better <laughs> idea. Uh, so, so we put it in the book post, and it went off to publishers, and it kind of got, got rejected. I never knew agents could get rejected, but they do quite often. But one one publisher came back and went, actually, I don't want this idea of this book. I just want a book on this. Ah, so your instincts were correct then. My instincts were correct, but I knew very little about it other than that, you know. And so I had a couple of months, gave me a couple of months to work out. So I had to throw away my whole other proposal, which is about a year's work. And then you had two months to kind of work this up. And I think it just connected with my passion for history, aviation, for exploration, kind of archaeology, even because arch- and then just ticked so many boxes. And then, especially when I got this old book. Yeah, you know, this is in the book, and people said to me, "Does this does this book actually show you? Yeah, does, does, does this book kind of, you know, actually exist? Because it starts off that I get this book, and the map falls open, and the newspaper cutting falls out, and does this book actually exist? And I post on social media, Mark Pies on Instagram and Twitter and things, uh, and here it is, a bit battered now after years oh, of research. Wow. It does exist." Just, this just is for a, the benefit of our listeners, Mark is holding up what you'd you, like this dusty tome. Yeah, from um, 1930. From, from 1930. So, uh, with the Arctic, uh, with the Italia to North Pole by N. Nobile. So, it's a bit of a mystery when I got when I got this. I went, oh my gosh! When I opened it, it's from a secondhand book, but an old library book. There was a cutting from uh, uh, April 16th, 1928, a newspaper cutting. Bound for the North Pole, Itali- Italian's big adventure, first day's thrilling experiences. It was just astonishing, That's... and it just looked. So that so was a like newspaper big... clipping that, that yeah. somebody who was owned inside that book, the book had yeah. put it inside the book. And yeah. what was the what's the title of the book again? With Italia to the North Pole. Right. So somebody was reading about this and then came across a story in a newspaper and yeah. clip, clipped out the clipping. And, yeah, that's right. And then when you opened it, the clipping kind of fell, fell out. out. Yeah. And was yeah, that was absolutely. that is that the is that what sparked the idea then for your book or was that part of your research? Well, the, the, I mean that was part of how I was going to approach the book because I had this idea I'd come across the story and I knew nothing really yeah. about it other than the sound is amazing and then suddenly uh, I get this book, you know, it literally and, fell into your lap like a, yeah, it, it, it literally fell. Into, yeah, absolutely. And uh, the main you know and the fact that the main character Roberto Nobile actually written his own account from 1930. You just went. Uh, this went. This is going to be an amazing story. Wow! There you go. So then you you had the bones of the story right there. You know, yeah. from from this first person account, um, and then well, I suppose I suppose the bones are just the chronological events. Mm. I mean, uh, my editor said just let the story tell itself. Don't don't try and be clever with the chronology. Yeah, and play around with it. Just let it tell itself. So, and did it come together quite easily then after that? Like once you discovered that you have a good story on your hands, it did. Yeah, it, yeah. I mean, I mean, part of the problem was it's such a huge story, you know. Yeah, you know yeah. So, so you know, many elements to it. Yeah, yeah, and so many elements, so many little kind of avenues you could go down. Mm. Uh, so many, you know, and had been written before, so you had different approaches. You could just look at the event itself. You could do some on the context, some on the event. You know, so there's different approaches that you could take, and. And I guess as I was writing, I realized more and more you can't really understand why they are on their eyes unless you understand the context. Well, let's get you know? into that a little bit. So yeah. just just outline the context for us. What the hell is an airship doing? <laughs> <laughs> it just it just 
it just doesn't make sense. You know what yeah. what what was going on there? Can you tell us a little bit of background to the context of yeah. why the airship was there? I, I, I mean, I yeah, that's that's a good point. I, I mean, it, I think we have to remember again. This is part of our history we've kind of almost forgotten. And this is why it's quite a good book about if you're interested in the battles between tech giants and which technology is going to win out. Because in the 1920s, although it's clear to us now, in the 1920s, it wasn't clear whether the future of aviation was going to be the plane, whether it was mm. going to be the airship, whether it was going to be some mixture of the two. And a lot of very serious people thought the airship was certainly going to be uh, a future or part of the future, certainly perhaps for long distance travel. It's certainly been used very effectively in the war. I think we forget how many hundreds of airships were used in the First World War. Absolutely, uh, yeah. That's where they made their mark, really. Like, exactly, you know, yeah. that's, that's where they first kind of started to dominate the skies to a certain extent. Yeah, and then going into the 1920s, you had a number of uh, airships, well, two very famous ones, which flew across the Atlantic way before fixed-wing aircraft did. So we forget that as well. It's actually the airships who pioneered these uh, long-term routes. So so by the time you get into kind of mid to late 20s, lots of people, you know, see the airship as one of the futures or the future or part of the future of aviation so, so in that sense and there was you know it wasn't wouldn't be unusual to want to fly an airship to the north pole and other people had tried before you know with less success and i guess for the explorer it also had an increasing attraction of you could fly over long distances far longer than in the plane at the time you have to remember how short range lots of aircraft were mm. you could fly over uh, over long distances really dangerous terrain in, in just in hours some of the distances uh, when uh, Embedded nobody flew to the North Pole would have taken months for someone on foot to yeah. walk, whereas yeah. they could do it in hours. You know, so it had this potential to revolutionise exploration. And there's also, if you wanted to do science, a lot of these expeditions justified it on the basis of, well, let's do some science. You had a very stable platform where you could actually conduct science exped- ex- uh, kind of experiments and things like that. So you had lots of advantages over an aircraft at the time and over doing it on foot. Okay, a lot of that makes sense. But did they not need some sort of facilities on the ground, you know, for the airship to to moor? And yeah. do you not? Did they not need that sort of backup? It doesn't just float across the no. sky and uh, yeah, yeah, horizon, yeah, absolutely, right? yeah, absolutely. And and I suppose in the part traditionally that's been one of the weaknesses of the airship compared to an aircraft. You can't just park it. Yeah, I know there's I know, I know there's some entrepreneurs, are very clever people trying to sol- solve that problem at the moment yeah i mean it did need infrastructure and and one of the most amazing buildings that were ever built i'd say in the world but i'm not but i think you can accurately say in, in the arctic you know was built in on svalbard in 1925 in the winter of 1925 to 1926 so it's pitch black and and when they decided when Raoul amundsen and emberto nobody had decided to fly to the north pole in alaska in an airship they had exactly that problem how are you going to, you can get an airship to Svalbard, near the North Pole, but the winds are so strong, the storms are to- so terrible, there's a good chance it's just going to be wrecked. So somehow you need to build one of these giant structures, which to me always seem like they belong to an alien civilization, that with these huge structures, they have to build one 500 miles close to the North Pole. I mean, it's an astonishing achievement. So a boat full of Italian carpenters and craftsmen goes up to the Arctic Circle, just in time, just before the ice cuts Svalbard, this archipelago of islands, off from the rest of the world for the winter. And they build this huge structure through the night. 
to the Arctic night where it's permanently dark. So these guys being living in the Mediterranean, you know, you know, face, I suppose, they've got true grit. I mean, they really, you know, they've got the right stuff. I mean, I mean, it's an amazing achievement. They work through the winter with almost no power tools in the pitch black. Okay, there's a few few lights and build this huge structure. So when there's ice melts, another ship can come with the canvas to cover it and the supplies. I mean, it's an astonishing achievement. And it's been totally forgotten. You know, amazing stuff. It's it's yeah, just yeah. such a great tale, and there's something about an airship that conjures up that romanticism of the yeah. skies. You know, I'm stretch. I don't think I've ever seen one um, <laughs> live. You know, yeah, yeah. they're just they're just not that common. But I do remember stories from my grandmother talking about her parents. I think she was a little girl at the time and they lived in England and she she would have been very, very small, but, I, you know, she recounts the, the zeppelins that would come over mm. astonishingly. And, like, she was too small to fully take in what was going on. But she, the only thing I remember her saying to me, because I was fascinated by history at the time, as a little boy at the time, and she was just telling me about the drone. You could hear them, mm. if not mm. see them. Yeah. And I could imagine just how frightening that must have been. You know, yes. even without even seeing it, but I mean, these these were massive, weren't they? Like, yeah. I'm trying to put it in in scale, having never seen one. Yeah, and we yeah. talk like like the one that you've written about. Are they as big as, say, something we can relate to today, like a seven four seven? Like, how how yeah. big were these things? I mean, that's a really, 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 really good question. I think it's fair to say none of the airships you have today, you, know, you may see the Goodyear Blimp or the Germans have some tourist airships, and there's a few others, are on the scale at all. Of these giant zeppelins from the past and that's obviously one of the problems when people say all oh, the airships coming back but anyone yeah. who wants to build that kind of airship no one's built it that big for 80 to 90 years there's no one alive who has got the knowledge so so that's one of the big challenges and the scale as you say is huge now the scale now the ship that nobody took to well first of all flew over the north pole in 1926 with wild Amundsen, and then the sister ship he took back in 1928 are about about the size of a very roughly a kind of seven four seven A three eighty kind of size, a big. That's massive. That's yeah. absolutely huge. But but the kind of the zeppelins and the British R one hundred one and the American Macrons are kind of probably about very roughly. So you know, I don't want any emails about the sizing. This is going to be very rough. <laughs> uh, it's about three times the size of that. So so these are huge, oh. huge, huge, and we're not talking about the kind of volume either. We're just talking about length. Yeah, because these, these are been... yeah, these are huge. Huge ships. I mean, the, I mean, the scale is unbelievable. Because you see those iconic pictures, you know, yeah. um, of the Hindenburg passing over the New York skyline, and it yeah. kind of gives you some idea of the scale and the size yeah. of them. They must have, like, for people in an age when even airplanes were relatively new, yeah. to see something like that, it must have been like seeing a UFO. It must have been seeing yeah, like, I think so, something yeah. just out of this world almost. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I mean, astonishing. I mean, the people at the when the nobly set off for the North Pole, people were describing how the sun caught their envelope yeah. of the airship and the shining. You know, this is the shining bright future of exploration, and it was kind of futuristic. And yeah, and absolutely, Incredible. I mean, it was astonishing. When one flew over Oxford, when the British ones flew over Oxford, I yeah. found a report in the Oxford paper saying it just caused chaos because everyone just stopped. And stared at this massive <laughs> airship flying over the dreaming spires. You would love to see one, wouldn't you? Like, you yeah, know, in our lifetime, I, I think somebody should. That should be somebody's pet project out in their shed. 
uh, start to <laughs> designing and put one of these back into the air. You know, it's just... well they're trying to. There's all sorts of projects. If you oh really? If you, uh, if you search me on kind of BBC Future, yeah, uh, that, you know, there's a number of projects where people are putting serious money to actually do this. Tell me, tell me a little bit more about this. This the whole greatest explorer, Roald Amundsen. Roald Amundsen, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I, I mean, lots. So, so he, he's a, he's almost like a separate story. With with the, he, he's already made his mark in the world outside yeah, of this incident, yeah. like which which cost him his life, right? I mean, mm. he was yeah. He's never been found since. So, tell us a little bit more about him. Okay, yeah, I, I think he's he is. I think one of the greatest characters. You know, for, in the beginning part of the of the twenty of the twentieth century. The, the fact that I suppose what makes this story so amazing, you've got these two people, Rod Armisen and Umberto Nobili, from totally different backgrounds, yeah. having to work together. I think that's kind of it's kind of great the conflict that great story kind of needs, really. So Rod Armisen, lots of people know him as the guy who beat Scott, yeah, you know, to the South Pole. Perhaps involved a bit of kind of skullduggery and all sorts yeah. of things. You know, being a fairly ruthless character, and obviously Scott and his men died on the, on the way back. Uh, you know, and and he was, and before that, he got through the Northwest Passage, discovered the Northwest Passage. It's amazing, amazing things. I mean, in the sense of, he's one of these characters who live over multi generations, who shouldn't still be around in the nineteen twenties. I mean, he's done more in his one lifetime than most people do would do in many, if, if you believe in reincarnation, I guess. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he's just this, this astonishing character. So there he was doing the Northwest Passage, the South Pole, all this other exploring kind of celebrity status i mean he's a ruthless guy i mean i don't think we can say he's you know mm. he's fairly ruthless he he made sure scott didn't know he was heading to, to the south pole I mean, there's all this kind of stuff going on perhaps he didn't warn scott enough about his doubts about some of the technology that he, scott was using so pretty ruthless guy and then and there he turns off in the 1920s pioneering aviation i mean it's astonishing that he and we and we just don't think of him in terms of you know, in terms of aviation, and he probably was one of the first people to realise how aircrafts were going to totally change exploration, and uh, and that's why what attracted him because he could see its advantage, especially over a landscape like the Arctic and and around the North Pole where you've got sea ice, which is really hard hard to move across uh, yeah. and very dangerous. So so we just don't think of him like that, but he's just this amazing character but by then he needed money he's perennially broke with lots of mistresses and he realized he's heading towards retirement so he needed a paycheck so he had this clash between these armaments who needed the paycheck who wanted who had the fame needed the last paycheck because you'd sell books it wasn't just expedition it's a hero business so it was the tickets the books the magazine articles the appearances the licensing i've been posting on instagram recently some games that people you know, obviously licensed games from the 1920s of fly your airship to the North Pole. So very reminiscent of today. Yeah, he's a celebrity so, of, his, of his age, yeah. I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So you had his need clashing with Umberto Nobili, who wanted to make a name for himself as an explorer and aviator. But he was backed by a bunch of the fascist governments in, in Italy, Mussolini, who everyone knows, and, and Italio Balbo. So he had to deliver for Italy for quite some quite scary uh, scary white guys you know who probably wouldn't wouldn't really be very happy with a failure so the two these two individuals who are very different people already from very different cultures and with very different motivations neither of them probably understand each other clash in these little airships and planes over the arctic i mean it's astonishing it's it's i love the way it's it's put here his relationship 
with uh you know to talk about general umberto noble is that yeah, yeah noble yeah so his relationship amundsen corroded beyond the point of collaboration noble his dog and a crew of 40 in town. So he, like, they complete, had a complete falling out then. They, they weren't even yeah, the, the, on communication terms. No, a, no. On a mission that required the best of collaboration. Like, it absolutely, their lives depended on it. Yeah. Well, there's two, there's two missions. One in yeah. 26, where they were kind of working together, but they fell mm. out afterwards, massively, yeah. over who was going to take the credit. In 1928, Armand had already written this book, slagging Nobly off, trying to destroy his reputation. So by the time 1928 happened, they weren't on speaking terms. Nobly refuses to get advice from Armandson, and instead he asked for every asked for everyone's advice all around his friends, which must have driven Armandson mad. And they, <laughs> when they took off, they weren't in contact with each other. And then there was this very dramatic moment when it crashed. It was it was this should be a Hollywood. I suppose it was a movie in the, in the 60s. Uh, you know, when they're all having all the great explorers of the age, you can see you can see the Netflix movie. Yeah. Yeah, all the explorers of the age are having dinner in this restaurant near Oslo. Just and, by pure coincidence. The, like, like pure, just... pure coincidence, yeah. Okay. yeah uh, and the new, news comes that the Italia has disappeared. Drama. Uh, yeah. Yeah, drama. And everyone turns to Amundsen because they know, <laughs> and it's a very public falling out in the papers, they know they, the two men hate each other. So they all turn to him to see what he would do. And, and then he pauses, he also thinks, and then he goes, tell them I'm ready. I'm on my way. I'm on my way, yeah, that kind, <laughs> that kind, that, uh, that kind of quotes. So, I mean, then it gets a more complicated game. So so it's kind of that that kind of amazing moment. And you could argue why you could have a wonderful interpretation. Like he's a man of honor, he wants mm. to rescue. He knows the code of being an explorer. Cynical viewers would be, oh my god, amazing! How much, how good would it feel to be the one to rescue this guy who's stealing, who, who's taken the credit from you, overshadowed you, and also obviously money and and fame as well. You know, he need he need he keeps needed needing to raise raise funds. So, wow, it, it was it was his moment to shine. Like this was his redeeming yeah. uh, time to shine in the sun, as it were, and set out yeah. and become the hero of this story yeah. and rescue his former collaborator turned rival yeah. and presumably if it had succeeded you know he would have sailed off into the sunset as it were yeah, absolutely yeah absolutely. Re- retirement check but that's not what happened right no no well things start to go wrong for Amundsen because by then he'd become quite a difficult man I think to be fair mm. to say so lots of people didn't want anything to do with him mm. so Mussolini uh stops him from leading being the head of the search mission for nobly uh, so, so that's his platform. He expected to have. Uh, he's going to lead the search, and mm. uh, so he's not allowed to. And they kind of, I suspect, the Norwegian government were quite happy not to have him leading the search as well, because they kind of fallen out with him as well. And so he had to find his own way. So, how is he going to get to the to the North Pole? He hasn't got much money because mm. he's always kind of broke, and he has to do deals, find someone who's got a plane or an airship, and eventually they find this experimental kind of prototype French flying boat. And the French are willing to lend it to him with a crew, uh, and and the plane has already had a bit of a history. Some of the crew has turned out since since the disaster, since it, uh, that weren't really very happy about having to do this flight, but they did it for the glory of France and also their army officers. You know that you know they mm-hmm. they had to. So they use this kind of plane, which you know if you want to land on the on the ice or in the, or in the water between the ice, you need a quite a strong hull, and you need to have mm-hmm. kind of a Float, you know, and it's and it's kind of more kind of kind of made out of wood rather than metal. 
Uh, you know, so it's not suited at all for Arctic exploration, and the, and the design had had problems. The first one had been destroyed, so it's underpowered. And so you had all these kind of problems, you know, you know, with it, and also he had too many men he wanted to take on it, and too much equipment. So straight away, there's a sense of disaster hanging over his own part of the expedition, and mm. and people recall him not getting his favorite i can't remember the detail i think it was his cigarette lighter he took on every expedition and he and it was broken and he didn't get it fixed for this expedition so there was a sense of and he gave some you know really odd interview as well you know it's a a sense of he was Mm. expecting not to come back from this almost right it's very odd his mindset lots of people you know have been written about you know about this his mindset before this trip and Mm. and then he you know flies Departs from Tronzo for Salvard. He refuses to go with anyone else, and uh, because there were other planes all heading towards this amazing moment, must have been spectacular. All these aircraft were congregating in Tronzo, northern Norway, to fly, mostly to fly to Salvard, somewhere to be shipped because it's still quite a long way for all those aircraft those days. But mm. he refused to work with anyone because other people said to him, "Look, let's all fly together because it's so dangerous." Yeah, uh, and, he, and he said, "I'm." He refused to share his plans because, it, well, he never did. So that's the kind of person he was anyway. But this was perhaps fatal uh, error. Yeah. Uh, and he and he never would tell people where he was going, which again worked for him in the past. But perhaps it was this this is a bit kind of you want to fly, you want to file a flight plan for this particular mission. Of course. Uh, so he sets off, and no one knows where he's gone or what his plans were. And he and he's seen by fishermen flying, you know, into the cloud bank, and that's the last time. You know, you know anything's anything was seen or heard heard from really. I mean, there's an odd radio transmission that evening, which people argue about. Yeah. And there's a message, you know. Well, yeah, there's a final message was standby message, important message coming basically, and that important oh. message never never it never arrived, never arrived. Yeah, and that was it. You know, there's been bits found here and there. A bit of one of the floats was found, which was had evidence that it must have had a crash. You know, so you know bits and pieces, but plane was never found the bodies were never found uh and ho- perhaps when the sea ice melts yeah which it sh- hopefully she won't but the perhaps they'll find yeah in a wreck somewhere so i was just about to ask you that was that was there anything over the years found you've you've kind of answered that question but it is intriguing isn't it i mean you know shackleton mm. ship was mm. found recently you know so yeah. like as as Unfortunately, the, the the ice caps kind of retreat a little bit, give up its secrets, right? Mm. So, like you know, from the airship, from the various rescue missions, yeah. Amundsen, his body was never yeah. found. Like, has there has there been any sort of intriguing clues or hints emerged over the years then to indicate what happened to all well, these various different people? That's a really good question. I think in the years afterwards, there were you know immediately afterwards there were one or two things were found. Okay, uh, you know, which seemed to be from the plane, which seems to suggest. There was a kind of a crash, uh, perhaps some time, or they landed and perhaps would try to repair it. Yeah. Uh, 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 and, but not not really anything that said this, this is where is the plane is. Yeah. And, and and then they've been, you know, even now that they they still run missions are using submersibles, you know, along the Arctic floor, you know, sea floor, trying to find evidence. Every now and then, someone comes up and goes, "I'm Amundsen's." grandson you know and they do a dna yeah. test and a famous you know and, and they prove that he's not his grandson so yeah it's a real mystery i, I mean mm-hmm. I, and perhaps luckily he's not been found so i mentioned in the book there 
a Soviet scientist in the 30s suggested that if they found his body frozen in the ice, they could yeah. reanimate him. And he's going, oh, <laughs> Armisen, you know, don't. <laughs> uh, uh, you, know, you, know, you know, don't put him through that. So, no, it totally disappeared. It'd be wonderful if they point it, if they did find the wreck uh, uh, and his men. Mm. And, and also no one's found the crew of the Italia, who, which floated off you know, and were never seen again as well. Perhaps... I mean, there wouldn't be much left. There'd be a metal bit of a metal structure and things like that. And but hopefully, perhaps they'll be found at some point. So yeah, it's great. So lots it's, of mysteries. Yeah. Lots of mysteries there, Mark. Lots of them, and it's it's it ties into all the great mysteries over the years. You know, Amelia Earhart. You know, they're still yeah. kind of looking for for her as well, and you know, evidence of her plane. And the, that crops up occasionally. They think they find a piece of yeah. a, the Titanic. All these kind of you mm. know secrets that are buried beyond human reach. I, I think that's part of our fascination with these stories, yeah. right? Because we yeah. can't just beyond our ability to just go and check it out for ourselves, be it two mm. miles under the North Atlantic or in, in the snowy wastes of the North Pole. Yeah. You know, is it, do you think that's part of the intrigue of these stories is that we can't go there physically uh, yeah. and see them for ourselves or try and Absolutely. find out. We're, yeah, we're, yeah, we're, the... preve- we're prevented by nature from, from our human endeavours to solve mysteries or see for ourselves do you think that's part of the intrigue yeah it must be i mean i thought of in that way yeah it must be we can't go there ourselves we have to rely on the frustrations you know about relying on other people to do our searching yeah for us and also i think there's a sense of also putting ourselves in their position how would we feel you know how would you feel if you were mm. you know you, you know if you were in the envelope of the airship floating away seeing the survivors below and realizing you're doomed, oh, or, or or an Amazon's plane. You know that one of the pilots, you know, apparently expressed a lot of doubts to his wife. You know, before before the flight. Yeah. Now, you know how 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 do you, and also I think what, what's intriguing is the motivation. I mean, I mean these planes mm. and airships weren't flight tested in any, in the way that we know today. Yeah. They 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 were barely tested in the Arctic conditions at all. So the. Mo- the attitude to the risk of their own lives and their kind of team's lives is very alien. A lot of about this book is very similar, I think, as we talked about the celebrity. But the thing that struck me as alien was this idea of risk mm. and, and and the worth of human life. And that seemed to me very different from our civilization, you know, today. That seemed to be a big difference. I, I was just thinking that when you were saying that, if you were to propose to carry out that mission today yeah. with all the technology and the abilities and the machines, that we, no way. Yeah. <laughs> People <laughs> would not do it. Like, they would just go, that's crazy. But Yeah, you, would, want to, you want a few test flights and you want to develop, but, you know. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's just not going to pass any health or safety review whatsoever, you know. You put bring this proposal and... Um, you know, to to whatever your whoever your backers would be, and they would just you know wouldn't get approval. It's just too dangerous. Mm. We're talking about how how long like eighty years ago, ninety years. Yeah, ago, yeah. You know yeah. when, you know it it beggars. I suppose we're just trying to put our mindset into theirs, which is which is not really mm. fair or accurate because no, back no. then, exploration was their big motivation mm. and their big goal, right? So that would have mm. you know bypassed any sort of questions about safety or risk or anything like that Absolutely, yeah they probably just you know I'm, I'm you know they're all they're still humans so i'm sure they were aware of the risk mm. but do you think that they were just in a way blindsided by this desire to, of, of exploration that overrode all these sort of 
risk concerns. And yeah, I'm sure that was. I mean, I mean, I suppose that persuaded people to head for kind of look for kind of El Dorado and the, and the Amazon and yeah, yeah, there was that element, isn't there as well? And someone actually mentioned to me, and I hadn't thought about it as well, was the, the sheer loss of life they'd experienced in the First World War in the Spanish flu. Yeah. How death was, how common death was, even you know, infant mortality. You know, yeah. so perhaps when you're living in that kind of society, death yeah, that's doesn't true. have, and you've seen your friends being killed and you survive somehow. You know, yeah. you know, not, um, doesn't quite apply to nobly and Amundsen, but you know, but you must have, you must change your view of, of things of what life is about, I guess. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Like it's, it was just a different time, wasn't it? Like, you know, like you mm. said, on the back of the First World War and, you know, in between wars and mm. there was the rise that you mentioned there, Mussolini, yeah. there was the rise of nationalism, all that was sort of behind all this. So it was a different world. They had different priorities, as I suppose, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, just back to yourself, Bart, you're, you're obviously aviation is your your bag, right? Mm. Um. So how, how did you get into aviation as a, as a subject what what's your background there okay well it's become my it's become my bag uh, i guess yeah, I mean, it yeah. started off uh you know i've always wanted to write so i, so I kind of uh, that's a good question i mean i started off kind of writing about education beginning because that's what i kind of knew about and then i moved into motoring but you know science and technology was kind of more, more my background so i ended up writing about science and technology i grew up dreaming about planes Mm. love you know loving history yeah so what i've noticed is increasingly uh over the last few years have gone by perhaps guided by the book as well and my kind of interests have moved more towards that than writing about startups or anything like that yeah you know? and it's just i think it's the I'm, i i don't know it's it's just the kind of the the depth of the stories and the you know and, and the things you can find out that have been forgotten yeah. And uh, I know lots of some historians hate this phrase, this forgotten, uh, you know, story. But I suppose you could say largely forgotten. But yeah, yeah. And and the kind of the, archety- the universal themes of quite a few of the of, the, of these stories, you know, too. I, and also, I, I I think there's the kind of flight is an amazing thing, isn't it? You know, the, you know, the aeronauts. I love the term, you know, you know, uh, aeronauts and aeronauts. Yeah, growing up thinking about planes, having your plane model planes hanging down. Oh, ah, yeah, that's that's yeah. something I completely relate to. That's how yeah. I got interested in in history was through those yeah. airfix models. Yeah, yeah. Um, just the fascination with flight. You know, Dublin Airport was not too far away yeah. from where I grew up, and you know we were effectively plane spotters. You know, oh, definitely, uh, yeah. Yeah, it it just you know it was just. Maybe there was not a whole lot else to do. We didn't have places. Yeah. <laughs> we had the imagination. I remember having imagination. Books. And my parents would take me to a load of air shows. And yeah. So I mean, I've had one flying lesson. Hopefully I'll have, have some more. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, that was kind of quite... Yeah, in America, over the kind of Arizona desert, that was kind of quite... Yeah, kind of amazing experience. So hopefully I can go back to that at some point, so... So what did you do there? You actually took a plane up, did you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The kind of taste the lesson, and uh, yeah, no, it's it incredibly exciting. I mean, when, when I give you the controls for the first time, yeah, I mean, kind of. It, I mean, it's just crazy sense. You know, you, you your lives are in everyone's hands. I mean, you and your instructor, I suppose, instructor would intervene if you <laughs> decided oh, it's, to do it's, something. I completely yeah, relate, Mark. It's it's yeah. you know because going up now and you know, fortunately or unfortunately, getting on a mm. getting on a plane, you know 
anywhere over to Europe. It's almost like getting the bus. You know, the, the, mm. you know, you're just strapped in. You're not even paying attention. Well, people like you and I, perhaps, you know, you do find yourself looking out the window. No yeah, matter how many times yeah. uh, you've been on a plane and just been fascinated by the view from up there. But I, but I, I did go up on a little Cessna plane myself mm. here in Dublin. It was, a, it was a friend of a friend who was had to build up the flying hours so he could qualify to become a commercial pilot. And at one stage, he did say to me, you know, do you want to take the controls? I was like, oh, I'm not <laughs> sure about this. And he said, you know, no, it's grand, you know, and you know, those old Cessnas, like it's like mm-hmm. flying a Fiat 127, mm. you know, the wings. Exactly, yeah, yeah. It was like, like, like being in a little metal box, the doors yeah. didn't even shut properly, you know. I remember grabbing the joystick and, and he said, oh, you know, over to the port or left, you know, and I, I nudged it, nothing really happened. He said, no, you have to give it a bit of welly. So I did, and the thing nearly, mm. <laughs> you know, you had to take control. It was just a brief glimpse of what actual flying must be like and then you know you know it's it is like old-fashioned days when you go up in one of those old airplanes isn't it it gives you a sense of what it must have been like and then get back to your story you know over these mad wastes as well it it must have been quite exhilarating and terrible incredible no on our honeymoon we're in in new New zealand and we got a rather than take the helicopter to see the glaciers of mount cook Mm. Mm. I insisted on on hiring the old ski plane that, that was still doing it. Deadly. Yeah, and it was just a kind of Cessna, like a Cessna with the skis, and and, and you fly around the mountain, you get buffeted. I'm like a helicopter. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, you get really buffeted in this little plane. It's just us and the pilot, and he lands on the glacier. You know, with yeah. skis, and it's kind We've of really there, yeah. rough. Yeah, yeah. When he turns it off, when he turns the engine off, which he kind of brave enough to do, he had just this utter silence. You know. Wow. Whereas with a helicopter, when the helicopter landed on the glacier nearby, they can't afford to turn the heli- engine off, or he said. So that's still rotating while people are getting out taking pictures. So you don't okay. have that silence. Okay. But yeah, it, it felt like you were, it, it was closer to what the kind of flying I imagined as a kid. Yes, and exactly. And then I got to write about, you know, in this book and hopefully other books and other articles, uh, it feels closer to, you know, as you said, flying. Rather yeah. than you know, are you, are you kind of as I am a little bit mystified how you didn't become a pilot? I'm kind of baffled why I didn't become a pilot, considering the fascination. Maybe it's just beyond my reach financially or whatever, you know. Yeah, yeah. In your case, I, I was interested in being an RAF pilot. I remember going to going to ha- have some eyesight tests at a very early yeah. age, see whether I could, mm. and then and then, someone, and then I realized you'd have to kill people, and then kind of <laughs> <laughs> I decided I didn't want to kill people. Okay, you know, which is fair enough. I mean, other, you know, that's great. Yeah. yeah, you just have to be prepared to do that, don't you? Otherwise, and uh, and, I, <laughs> and I think I just kind of lost. I didn't think about it beyond that, which is a bit sad, really. I, I think kind of right on. Yeah, well, I I I'd kind of even, nice to. even you know more spacer ideas, but like my name is Neil. I'm named after Neil Armstrong. You know, of the, course, yeah, yeah. So that that's how much you know it's had the down through the family. Like my my dad obviously had saw the moon landings when I named yeah. my first after Neil Armstrong so it's there in the DNA <laughs> uh, but we could just live through it yeah. through our imaginations you know which is greatly yeah. helped by books like this one folks and um, you've got to check it out it's, and fall down the hunt for the Arctic airship Italia let's say it right it's the N4 down the hunt now. for the Arctic airship Italia and it's published by Mariner Books yeah there you go. And we can get it everywhere, right? You can get it online. Yeah. You can get it, you know, in, in go to your bookshops as well. See if it's there. You know, good old bookshops. Keep keep it real. Are you working on anything else at the moment, Mark, that we might look forward to in the near future? Yeah, hopefully, hopefully. I can't really say much, but the next book will be 
taking what people really, if you look at all the really, it's got great reviews on Amazon uh, by readers and on Goodreads, which is, you know, nice, and mm-hmm. you know, as well as the critics. But, yeah. you know, it's great, great reviews. And one of, the, one of the things everyone says is thrilling, gripping, unputdownable. Yes. So the next story is going to be, uh, I hope, taking those values to a slightly different era, something to do with the Cold War uh, and kind of aviation still uh, and kind of daring do and skullduggery, lots, lots of the and, oh, are... and rivalry and hopefully lots of similar themes. That's, you know, look, you're on to a surefire winner. Like I said, folks, it's great. It's got all the elements and yeah, I, I, I can see it on Netflix soon. What do you think? Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, that'd be great, wouldn't it? I mean, yeah, yeah, it would be good. Yeah, yeah. A six parter, you know, you could. A six parter, yeah. yeah. Mark, it's been a pleasure talking to you pleasure. this afternoon. Um, thank you very much for joining us on The Hipstorians. Uh, again, sorry, Derek couldn't make it. He's going to be raging. He's going to miss out on this on this one. But he can check in and listen like everybody else here at The Hipstorians. Mark, I see. Thank yep. you very much for joining us. <laughs> Thank you, Neil Armstrong. Oh, sorry, not Neil Armstrong. <laughs> Let's go with that. So there you go, folks. There's another episode of the Hipstorians. Thanks for joining in and tuning in. Thanks to our guest, Mark. And uh, you can get us on all our social media. Check out our Twitter. They're very active and uh, on Facebook and whatnot. We are out every Thursday with a new episode. So check us out then. And uh, in the meantime, take care. I would like to take just a moment to thank all the Hipstorian followers for your support during the first five months of the show. Both myself and Neil are delighted that so many of you are enjoying what we do here. We plan to continue and expand our efforts into the future. As you can probably appreciate, it does cost to produce the show and we have been funding this ourselves. There is a link within the episode where you can make a one-time one euro enjoyment donation very much welcome uh, any donations at all in fact we will be offering a paid subscription tier more on that later and anyhow if uh, you don't have it don't worry keep tuning in we'll be here